for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Brandis Daniel, founder and CEO of Harlem's Fashion Row, the agency that launched in 2007 to connect brands and designers of color. In the last year alone, the company has partnered with companies including H&M, Tommy Hilfiger, Nordstrom, and Abercrombie & Fitch. Plus, it launched HFR & Co., an e-commerce site slash designer directory supporting Black and Latinx designers. I wanted to ask Brandis about the growth trajectory of Harlem's Fashion Row, considering fashion's fluctuating prioritization of inclusivity. I also wanted to discuss her ability to ink deals with fashion's mega brands, which is the focus of her new book, Small Business Big Partnerships. Welcome, Brandis. Thank you, Jill. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you. I feel like we go way back. We do. You are a Glossy 50 alum, class of 2020, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> and also, gosh, I see, I feel like I bump into you a lot. I think most recently at the um, September Fashion Week, we were sitting next to each other at Studio 189. Yeah, we were. <laughs> I had never been to that show. It was so fun. Oh my God. Have you, you go every season? That is one of the best shows during New York Fashion Week. There's so much joy in the room at that event. You're not kidding. Oh my God. Well, we have to talk about your connections in the industry. I want to talk about your first book, not the book I mentioned in the, in the intro. And I'm not sure if it's actually your first ever book, but your first of a three-part series is called Fashion in Color. And I would I just received it over the weekend. It is beautiful. And it has a lot of these um, guests that we've had on the podcast, Rich Fresh and Charles Harbison and Anifa. And I was like, oh my God. Every time I opened the page, I was like, oh my God. Anyway, talk to me about the point for the book. What was the intention and and what is the response you're seeing? Oh my, first of all, I was so happy that you got the book in your hand. Like I wanted to make sure that you got it um, it really is honestly my personal love letter to this industry. It is um, a way for us to really preserve the contributions of Black designers in fashion. You know, I started looking for any type of book that really kind of helped me to learn more about Black designers in fashion, and I couldn't find any. The last one that was written was in 1982 called Blacks in the History of Fashion, it was written by a woman, Lois Alexander Lane. And I thought, okay, something is wrong here. Uh, <laughs> HFRs have to do a book. And because I really, we can't fit all of the amazing designers into one book. So I said, you know what? This would be volume one and we will continue volumes. But it's a great way to get introduced to multicultural designers. There's a QR code on all the pages where it's so easy to go and shop from the, from, from the designers, from that QR code. Um, and so it's something that I really want to be around for like the next, I don't know, thousand years <laughs> so yes. that people would know the designers that existed during this time, the designers of color that existed. Yes. It's very educational. You learn a lot about each one. Are each of the three books going to be kind of set up like the A to Z of Black designers? So here's the thing. I'm not putting a cap on it, Jill. It might be three volumes. It might be 10 volumes. Um, and we're going to give ourselves some creative license for the next book. Like I really want to have, we, this book, it was, it was, a, the process was amazing, but honestly, we had such a tight timeline. And so it was also a little stressful, um, but it came out so beautiful. 
And so the next book that we do, we're really going to give ourselves um, some creative license. I want to be able to show more aspects of the designers because a lot of them are artists and, you know, they are, they do illustrations. And so I want to be able to show all the facets of the designer and kind of like maybe a few pages each. Yes. It's awesome. Get it while it's hot, y'all. Get it while it's hot, y'all. It deserves to be on everybody's coffee table. (laughs) It really does. We have to talk. What happened? Let's circle back. Very beginning because your business has evolved and evolved. 2007, you were involved in the industry. I'm sure you weren't as connected, but what was the experience that you had that tipped you off to say, okay, Black designers are not getting the same opportunities. I can do something here. Yeah, so I was working in apparel production, which is the very unglamorous side of fashion that's dealing with all the manufacturing. So I traveled a lot to Asia um, during that particular role. And I went to a fashion show actually in Brooklyn with a girlfriend and um, we're there and we're watching the show. And I thought, you know what? I want to do this in Harlem. And it started just like that. You know, even before that point, friends and I were doing several events in Harlem. We were doing Harlem brunches to connect young professionals in the neighborhood. Uh, We hosted the hottest Harlem house party. That's what it was called at our brownstone uh, twice a year. And so we were already like so entrenched in the community. And um, I thought, you know what, I should bring like a really great fashion experience um, to Harlem as well. And so that's how it started. I didn't really understand that I was starting a business. I didn't know the challenges that existed in terms of like the lack of Black designers in the market. I didn't understand any of that until the second year I tried to do that event again. Oh, for crying out loud. And then did you get attention immediately because like you said, it was so rare. I'm sure you didn't immediately get buy-in from Vogue and CFDA like you do now, but like, what was the attention that it took to kind of take it to the next level? Yeah. The first year we actually got a small write-up. I mean, I was so proud of this deal. It was like two lines in Women's Wear Daily. I mean, forget about it. I showed that little, it was like two lines, but I showed it to everyone. Um, And we got a write-up in style.com and I was so excited. And when I started working on the second event and I was looking specifically for Black and Latinx designers, I realized, oh, where, where are they? Like, maybe I'm missing it. I looked, I Googled, I checked everything. I went on department stores website. I went from designer to designer on those websites and realized at the time that less than 1% of the designers that were on every major department store's websites were black. And I thought this is this cannot be real, it cannot be true. And I I call myself a fashion outsider because I didn't come, you know, I don't have the fashion pedigree um that a lot of people have. And so I thought maybe it's just me. Maybe I don't know. And then I just started to research more and I realized, no, this is a real problem. And so I said, well, how much is this community spending a year on apparel? And in 2007, it was $22 billion a year. And I, I that for me was like, that was a straw that broke the camel's back because I was so frustrated about it that I felt like, hey, I don't really feel qualified to do this, but I cannot sit around and do nothing when I see this glaring issue in front of me. Was your first step 
I need to make great connections in companies or it was was it to say I need to befriend the designers and find out their needs was it all happening simultaneously It was kind of happening simultaneously so I was definitely meeting new designers um I was being introduced to new designers because we had already done the show in 2007 2008 was the year I spent that entire year doing research 2009 was actually our second physical show And um, I was building relationships with designers. I was building a community as well, because one of the things that I know is that you can't achieve anything great by yourself. And because I didn't really have any fashion connections, um, I started cold calling a bunch of people. I started sharing my vision with people. I asked people to be on an advisory board. Um, Audrey Smaltz was the first person who said yes to be on my advisory board. And it just started to... That started to open me up to more people. She introduced me to Stephen Burroughs. We honored Stephen Burroughs. That was our first designer we ever honored in 2009 because she made because she made that call for me. And so it was a little bit of building community while also building relationships with designers. Um, I really hadn't started to think about the brand piece and how I was going to pay for all of this. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So that's where the brands come in. That's where you're making the money. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about, you mentioned that you were honoring Stephen Burroughs. Let's talk about what you do. You do a fashion show slash fashion awards, which I've been to your show. I went this one I think it was September 2022 is the last time I got to attend. And it was that like crazy rainy night. I was like, no. And you were honoring Janet Jackson, I think. But anyway, the fact of the matter is, it's talk about a lively show. Again, where there's when at the um, 189 show when Rosario and Abrima get on the phone and I'm like, on the phone, on the microphone. And I'm like, why don't we hear from the people behind these shows more often? Like this just makes great sense. And you hear about their inspiration and you hear about why we're here, but there's a lot of talk and a lot of, um, I would say communication that's happening at your shows. Talk to me about your approach and, and why the awards are such a key part of it. So I initially started adding the awards in, that was in 2011. And it was strategic in the very beginning of HFR. A lot of the designers that we were showing weren't very well-known designers. And so I thought, if I can bring in an awards component where we can also provide a platform to like amazing stylists and editors and icons in fashion, they will have to be there to also watch these amazing designers. And so it was very strategic at the beginning. And now it's really become, I think, something that the industry looks forward to. So we host a fashion show and style awards every September. It's our largest event of the year. We did this year at the Apollo Theater. Uh, We honored ASAP Rocky with the Virgil Abloh Award this year and Kelly Rowland with our Icon Award. And we showed three incredible designers. We also, uh, Gabriella um, um, from Vogue, we got an award. Um, We also honored Wayman and Micah. And so it's really important that for me that we're honoring people who may not ever get an award from any other organization in fashion, but truly deserves it. And so that is, I feel like, a moment of community celebration. I mean... Everyone there is so excited about that person getting their flowers publicly. And so you feel that warmth and you feel that energy. 
And then when the designers come out, by the time they come out, everyone's so excited and ready for them um, because we've heard all of these amazing speeches from the honorees. And and so everyone's feeling really good. And so it makes for an even better fashion show. You mentioned the 1% of designers that were Black designers at, in, at 2007. And then we hit 2020 and the 15% pledge happens. And I think the last time that we talked was around 2021. I did a story in early 2021, February, and you were talking about the challenge of these newer emerging designers to, I guess, like ramp up production and all the needs that are required to make it now that they're in demand among retailers. Um, We'll talk about whether this, this has lasted and all of that. But at the time, it was like go time. And talk to me about like pre 2020 Post-2020, um, the killing of George Floyd and the 15% pledge and all of the the new expectations, um, demands on, on retailers and how that changed your role and your business. Yeah, 2020 was such a pivotal year for us. Um, we started our nonprofit, Icon 360. We got a million-dollar donation from the CFDA in Vogue. Um, Anna Wintour had me as her in her editor's letter in August. And so, of course, that opened up like so many doors for for HFR um, for us personally. Right. But then you had everything that was happening for the designers. So before 2020, a lot of them wanted to be sold in department stores. But quite frankly, they never got the opportunity. And so it went from like zero to a hundred in months. So you had designers who had never been reached out to before, who had never been considered for in-store, who uh, had been passed over for multiple years for opportunities to be carried in department stores, now getting contacted by several department stores asking to be in-store, right? But they had never been in store before. And if you're in this industry, you understand that that is a very intense process to be prepared to go from D to C to wholesale business. Number one, a lot of their pricing structures weren't priced for wholesale. They were very much so priced for D to C. A lot of them didn't understand kind of how do you ship to department stores because that's a whole process of its own. Um, In the very beginning, stores were saying, don't worry about it. We won't charge you back. If you make a mistake, it's okay. So, you know, they were getting a lot of grace in the very beginning. Um, Department stores were also giving them um, deposits a lot of times. So they were getting deposits from department stores. So it was, it just felt like this abundance of amazingness (laughs) that was happening. That's fantastic. And overwhelming um, too, right, for these designers. And then you get literally, Jill, it was only a year later, 2021. Then the deposits stopped. Then, you know, you know, it started being department stores started to say, look, you got to ship to us the right way, right? Like you have to read that long and thick, what is it called? A routing guide, I believe. You got to read that thick routing guide so that you understand how to ship to our store. By 2022, you're at a place now where brands are like, okay, wait a minute. Um, Is this selling? We're not giving you a deposit. Now we're giving you a charge back. Now it's like, there was, it it's was gotten ugly. So fast and furious. And what I've been talking to brands about is it's not enough to bring black designers into your store. 
The real success is how can you maintain them? How do you make sure that they stay in your store? How do you support them with marketing dollars so that your customers actually get to know them? How do you actually build their businesses up, right? And so, because that's what happened for all of our great American designers. It wasn't, they they weren't just thrown in the store and, you know, someone expected them to win. They were given the proper support. But I think because so many of these designers were brought in at one time, you know, over the last, I would say, year or two, it's been really tough for them. They really have not gotten the support from most department stores that they deserve. And I would challenge department stores and say, you know, it's not, I would look, I would measure your success with your diversity programs by these designer success. Because if they're being carried and they're not successful and you're actually causing them more stress, (laughs) the benefit then that's not a successful program. You should go back and look at it and maybe like revamp that program. Absolutely. I mean, what you're saying, it calls to mind the recent conversation we had on this podcast with Charles Harbison and how he moved so fast and really just put the halt on the whole company and just said like, I can't do this and start it fresh with his own, again, direct to consumer and inching into stores now and doing things his way. But let's talk about him really quick because I yes. think, maybe as a case study and you tell me if if you want to talk about this but like I'm such a fan I'm such and a he, fan too <laughs> yes, such a fan and tell me god I have no um concept of time at this point but um there was the amazing collaboration with Banana Republic tell me about and Harlem's Fashion Row tell me about is that a typical partnership that you are working with you're putting together these designers with these mega brands. They're doing a collection, hopefully, and then more after that. (laughs) But yeah, is that typical? And talk to me about bringing that together. So that was not a typical collaboration for us because it was a competition. And we had not done a collaboration as a competition before. So we, um, the design director at Banana, who's no longer there, but was just such an amazing human, Omar, he um he said Brandis I'm I'm willing to try this like let's see you know what type of talent we get so we did a competition we cast a very wide net and Charles was one of the designers that actually applied for the competition awesome. he told me that he had stopped applying for any of those types of competitions uh before this and he got down to the final 3 and ended up being like you know, the finalists who actually uh, won that competition out of hundreds of designers. And that collaboration was so incredibly successful. One of the things that we've seen, especially in the last few years, is that consumers are looking to purchase from Black designers at an approachable price point. And collaborations allow them to do that. Most of the designers are producing domestically, which means that their prices are a lot higher. So people can't always afford those price points. But if you give them a really great Black designer at an approachable price point, they will respond. And we saw that with Charles Harbison's collection at Banana. It beat gross margin expectations by, I'm talking about, Three three digit percentages. Okay. Oh, fantastic. It beat sales goals. It was, 
you know, again, I think a great way for Banana to introduce consumers who may have walked away from the brand to introduce them back to the brand. And so that was, it was successful, like honestly, 360, when I look at it, it was successful for Charles, it was successful for HFR, it was successful for the consumer, and it was really successful for Banana Republic as well. And it got Charles back out in the world (laughs) where he should be. Absolutely. Has that point that you just made really driven the types of partnerships that you're looking to drive right now, that affordability? And we're involving the kind of more mass mainstream brands like Abercrombie and Fitch or H&M. Is that that kind of the affordability is key right now? Yeah, I think the the price point is key. Um, The storytelling is also really key. You have to have the right designer for the brand. Like that's something that we pay a lot of attention to. Like when brands reach out to us about a collaboration, um, we are so mindful and we have so many internal conversations about who is the right designers to consider for this opportunity. Like the Abercrombie and Fitch collaboration, which is in stores now, it might be on sale now. I'm not sure. It's been there since October. But, you know, we partner with Nicole Benefield, which is not a very well-known designer. Um, We've shown her collection the past two years, but it is a designer that we believe in so strongly at HFR. And it is also a designer who I felt like really fit with the Abercrombie and Fitch aesthetic. And she, again, that collaboration also has been very successful. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Let's jump around a little bit because at that September 2022 show that I attended, you were hinting at HFR and Co., which has since taken off. Tell me about that plan and how it's going. You know, so I my thought behind that was all of these retailers are now carrying Black designers. They're now carrying Latinx designers. But we don't know that as consumers. I don't know who Nordstrom carries that's a designer of color. I have no idea. I, well, I know, but I'm saying as a consumer, I'm talking as the consumers out there. Yes. <laughs> I, I know. But, <laughs> you know, and Macy's and Saks and so many of them are carrying Black designers, but people didn't know. And so HFR and Co., that website is really how do we aggregate these designers were sold in major department stores on one platform so that let's say you're a person and you don't want to shop D to C you want to be able to shop from Nordstrom's because you have a Nordstrom card, or you want to be able to shop from Bloomingdale's because you're a rewards member. You can do that through HFR and co. And so it's been really successful. We still have a lot of work to do. Every time we start something new with HFR, I have to remember it's a new startup. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done there, but Um, we are seeing the awareness go up. We're seeing the sales go up as well on that platform. So great. So you've got brand partnerships, you've got e-commerce, you've got a book (laughs) business. Um, Tell me about the elements that I'm missing of your business. You've got a lot going on. We have a lot going on. We do. We also work with the HBCUs. Um, We partner brands with HBCUs, which are historically Black colleges and universities. Um, There's about 25 of them that have fashion departments. And so we've been working with them for the past maybe eight years. Um, We were working with just three in the very beginning, Howard, Hampton, and Clark. Uh, But we've started to work with 
North Carolina A&T and North Carolina Central. And we partnered, Saks Fifth Avenue um, just partnered with TSU um, on, you know, help doing some some sessions for their fashion department, which, you know, TSU is one of those schools that get left out as Tennessee State. A lot of times it gets left out. So it was great to have the Saks, you know, executives come in and, and do that. Um, we also have AEO. They partner with North Carolina Central and Tiffany and Co. with North Carolina A&T and Tapestry with Bowie State uh, and Levi's with Clark Atlanta. And so HBCUs is another big piece of, of what we do at HFR and our nonprofit Icon 360. Just supporting. Yes. Even separate or maybe it's intermixed with these initiatives. But um, you also have these summits that are like amazing network opportunities of, of networking, amazing learning opportunities. What's going on there? Yeah. So, you know what, Jill, I should do? I should step back and say, so HFR, we act as a bridge between designers of color and retailers. And we do that in four different ways. With pipeline programs, such as our HBCU programs, through events, such as the summits that we do. We have a Black History Month summit coming up. Uh, We do retreats for designers. We do um, sustainability summits, such as with collaborations as well. Collaborations is another piece. And through media. And so media with would be, um, uh, we just launched a new fashion and color podcast. Uh, We have the book. And so we'll be doing other things in media space as well. And then the last thing would be through shopping, which is our HFR and co-platform. What would you say? We, We talked about some. If you had to name like the one, the biggest challenge facing designers of color right now, uh, is there something maybe specific to 2023? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge right now is really funding, <laughs> which is probably yes. the challenge for most emerging designers. Uh, yes. But the opportunity is so great. And when I say opportunity, I'm talking about revenue opportunity is so great for these designers, but it takes money to make money, right? And so a lot of times they don't have the capital to really scale their businesses because you know the cash flow is tight they're not able to hire the right team um that is the number one challenge absolutely like i was hoping that out of 2020 an investment group specifically for black designers would be formed to really provide the infrastructure like a centralized infrastructure for black designers that's what I was hoping for. Yes. It happened. Oh it hasn't gosh. happened yet. But we're putting the idea in the world, it, folks. Let's put the idea out there. <laughs> it's a good one. Can I get you to comment on? I mean, it, I feel like maybe it just signifies that there's still work, much, much work to be done. But uh, we were just talking this morning on our year in review podcast with some other members of my team at, about we were talking about the changing of the guard and the new. It was a big conversation in fashion this year about uh, somebody put out a post showing the the white male creative directors of caring. Yeah. That's all there is. Um, yes. Did you talk about, about that? And what was your take on that? Yeah. You know, this industry has so much work to do. And unfortunately, Jill, I feel like the bulk of the work, the best work we've seen happened between 2020 and 2021. Um, at this point, it really is going to require us as consumers to vote with our dollars, you know, who continues to succeed. Um, it is 
really on us because I, and I am such an optimist. Oh my goodness. That is the core. I am. However, I do not have a lot of faith that um, this industry will make the changes that it needs to make without pressure from consumers. I really don't. It's, um, it's really honestly disheartening. And uh, when, when we see the regression the, that's happening right now in fashion, my only hope and the thing that keeps me hopeful is that there are still a nice core group of brands who are still doing the work. And a lot of them are doing the work without any press, without any press release. And I, I get to see that, right? Like Saks um, hosted um, masterclass workshops with designers. Nobody knew that they were doing it. They had their top executives on a Zoom with 50 Black designers, giving them advice, uh, giving them instructions on how to be carried in any department store. You know, I've seen it with so many of the brands that we work with, with Nordstrom. They're doing great work behind the scenes with Macy's. They are our longest standing um, retail partner. And so that is what gives me hope is that there are people at these brands that are still pushing forward. And because of their effort, things are actually changing. So you don't see it as the fashion industry overall. It is challenging, especially in the luxury space, quite frankly. Um, But I am seeing a lot of effort that gives me a lot of hope. Definitely. And not just consumers voting with their dollars, I guess media. Anyway, holding or anybody with a social account holding these brands accountable. There were so many large, large promises made in 2020. I'm always on my team, like, let's check back in on, on how they're that. doing. Cause Jill, I have I have all the promises. I have them screenshot. They are in a deck. You hand them over, Brandis. We've got work to do over here. <laughs> oh my God. I love this. So tell me, when you're talking about you feel good because there's brands still doing the work, a lot of the work that you're doing and the, the in terms of partnerships and collaborations, um, you're, the brands are coming to you largely, or are you kind of picking up on those promises and saying, hey, I know you have this intention, we should work together. Is it kind of it's both. Uh, a mix? It's yeah. Both. yeah. So a lot of times, especially for collaborations, usually brands will come to us <clears throat> for collabs, But we also do a ton of outreach just so that brands know, hey, we're here. This is what we do. This is how we can support you. Um, This is how we can support the work that you've already committed to. (laughs) (laughs) Step up. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, So it's a little bit of both. Right on. Well, talk to me about this latest book, Small Business, Big Partnerships. Who is your reader? Who do you anticipate will get the most out of your experience? And I feel like it's about reaching for the stars, but what can you tell me? Yeah. So you know what? Um, On my personal Instagram, I do a lot of inspirational posts. I do a lot of kind of business advice on my personal Instagram. And people ask me all the time about partnerships. How do I get partnerships? How do you partner with this brand? How does it work? And so the book is really almost a step-by-step guide in like, how do you partner with big brands? So if you're a company and um, let's say you do events and you want sponsors for your brands, that's a way. Let's say you're a podcast and you're looking to partner with with, uh, companies to advertise on your podcast. 
Um, it really is for maybe you're an influencer and you're looking to partner with big brands there. Um, it really is, I think, a way for small businesses to consider scaling their businesses. So our company, Harlem's Fashion Row, um, I mean, that's been the sole way that we've scaled up to this point. Now, we're looking at diversifying that over the next five years, but our sole way has been through brand partnerships. And so I wrote that book for people who ask me all the time, how how do you do it? Now they can go to smallbusinessbigpartnerships.com and they can pick up the book there and um, everything that I've learned, I, I teach in that book. Awesome. I feel like that's a good book <laughs> for journalists to read. I'm always asking my team, what is the money exchange here? Because I'm like, what's a partnership? Like, who's making money? What's going on? Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure you break it down. That's great. Talk to me about the next five years. You mentioned kind of ways to diversify. What's what's to come? So we are, HFR is kind of split up into six phases. Um, it, the first three phases were about building relationships with designers, with the industry, and with brands. And so our next three phases are about really uh, building direct relationships with consumers, um, getting into the media space, and then building out products. So we want to be able to collaborate directly with a designer at a certain point. Um, that's probably a little bit further down the line, but where we are right now is really how do we reach consumers directly? Because the, for the past, really, I'd say like our first 12 years, 13 years of business, we weren't focused on consumers. And so now through HFR and Co., through the Fashion and Color book, um, through our new podcast, um, Fashion and Color Show, which is on podcast platforms and on YouTube. And now that all of that, the whole goal is to connect with consumers. Um, the media is the way that we're doing that. And so that's where we're we're headed. You'll see more things from HFR in the media space. Um, and then hopefully the next, I'd say like five to six years, you'll see us really helping to get some products off the ground in collaboration with designers. Oh, so great. Your own brand in a bigger way. Um, that'll be great. What are you most proud of this year to wrap it up? At the end of the year, looking back. <laughs> I'm most proud of the Fashion and Color book. It has been something that I've thought about for years. Um, it was a lot of work. We produced a version of the book that came out last August. I saw the printed version of the book and scrapped the whole thing. It was really hard for me to do. I just didn't feel like it was what I wanted, what we wanted to put out into the world. And so we started all the way over on that book. And when we launched that book, we launched in six windows of Macy's. And um Every time, even me mailing your book, like I cannot, hopefully you felt the love when you got it because every time I pick up one of those books, it's like, it's like one of my babies. Like it is, I love it so much. So much heart and soul went into it. Every page is intentional. Every designer is intentional. Every painting is intentional. The artist, um, her name is Ashley Buttercup. So we commissioned her to do all the artwork and she's an artist, Black female artist out of Brooklyn. Um, she was so intentional about like the artwork. And so it is absolutely the thing that I am most proud of. Every time I see somebody with the fashion and color book in their hands, I just, I'm like, 
<laughs> you did it. Um, and the artwork, I was going to ask you, did the artist come in after August or she was part of the whole plan? She came in after. So part of the reason why I scrapped the first book was because the artwork wasn't right. And I didn't know the artist. And so my um, the small, I would work with a small Black-owned publish, publishing company, Mind Matters, and they had hired uh, an artist. And I, I felt like I needed a connection with the artist and that I needed to know that the artist cared a lot about every designer they painted. And Ashley was that. I mean, she, all of those actually are original art. We have the original artwork. So every painting in that book, we own the original artwork for it. And um, she just nailed it, not just with like their but like with their sentiment, with their attitude, with their style, like it just comes through in all the paintings. I, I just, I'm, I'm so in love with that book. It's beautiful. Like I couldn't wait to Instagram it. And it's obviously, I wanted to say people are proud of like seeing themselves look like that. They're also proud of being part of your project, obviously, but I tagged a couple of the featured designers and they like reposted me and I'm like, Ooh, look at me. But I'm like, obviously they love their... <laughs> Their profile in your book. They all had to approve it. That was the other hard part, Jill. Every designer had to approve their painting. You know how creatives are. You know this. So so do you know, like, the fact that every designer, including Olivier. So Olivier Rustin wrote the foreword, and he also had to approve his painting. So every painting in the book was approved by the artist. Um, before we put it in the book. Oh my gosh. Well, yes, as we said, it's so beautiful. Brandis, congrats on the book. Congrats on an awesome year. Hope you're resting on your sister vacation. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.